he said, you guys, you guys know how to have church. <laughs> he said, you guys, I hear the sounds of revival. I'm thankful, though, to be in a group people are hungry for more than just dead religion. We got enough of that. Turn that up or something. It's getting cold in here. I knew it would go the other way. I hear people saying it's hot, and then you turn it anyway. So, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We bless you. And as we pray tonight, we ask you that as we get into the word of the Lord, that you would come and speak through me everything that needs to be said and, Lord, help everybody, in the sound of my voice, to be good, fertile soil, that everything will be accomplished in and through this, that your will to be done. As you speak through me, this will go out. Let your Holy Spirit move upon everyone, that we're going to have good soil in our hearts, our minds. will be tuned into what you're saying, that by the Holy Spirit we'll be able to see what we couldn't see before. But it'll, the Word of God will really bear fruit and stay with us. Let it be seed that's sown into us, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit, fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Let there be a washing of the water of the word. Lord, let there be um, a shining light of truth that dispels the darkness. And like a hammer of the word is to break through strongholds. But Lord, let this be powerful and effective and everything will flow in and through this that your will to be done in every life. And let your Holy Spirit, the winds of your spirit, carry this out among the nations. Just blow the word of God out that it's going to get out uh, through the internet, uh, podcast or whatever, to the nations of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that the word of God says it will not return void, but accomplish that which you sent it for to do. And so, Lord, we know Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we take authority as a church and we bind up anything. In the name of Jesus, right now, that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to be and do what it's supposed to be doing. We bind you in Jesus' name. Back off, Lord. Let your angels just clear that out and let there be freedom in the word of God tonight. Being spoken, no hindrance, no distractions. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start a series tonight called Blood and Fire. And I'm dealing with, it's kind of an interesting concept. So I'm dealing with generational bloodlines and I'm on not only deal with that, but in this, I'm going to deal with the power of the blood of Jesus and getting into the glory of the Lord. And so I'm going to take my time with this series. It's going to go on for a little while. I don't want to rush it, and I don't want to try to cover too much at one time. But next week, Brother Benny will be with us. I forgot to announce that. So I'm looking forward to seeing him. I always love it when he comes. So make sure you're here. Um, Anyway, so tonight, I really want to deal more with generational heritage how many of you guys knows in here in America a lot of times most people really don't know too much about their ancestry especially spiritually speaking and there's just a lot of things that are not dealt with and I would say unfortunately especially today that there's probably not too many places that people are going to be taught this and it's it's sad because Jesus paid for our victory, paid for our deliverance for us to be walking in victory, but it seems like subjects like this are avoided in a lot of places. And, and it's sad because there's many people that are going to struggle because they don't know certain aspects of the Word of God that they need. Um, but anyway, I'm going to deal with heritage. Your heritage that's been affecting you, either positive or negative, and then the heritage that we need to pass on. Okay. This is a huge subject for my wife and I. And I think probably more or less, uh, for her especially, obviously, her testimony. You know, she came out of so much dysfunction, and she really wanted to see a godly heritage established. So, let me read some scriptures, and I think you'll kind of see where we're going with this. So, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, it says only, now God's, Speaking to Israel here about some very important things, he says, only give heed to yourself. That means listen and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. So how many of us have experienced some things? You know, in revival, I have seen people miraculously healed. I've seen people miraculously delivered. I've, I've seen the power of God many times. 
And I tried to tell the revival stories, which I don't have time to really get into that in this big rabbit trail, but you guys have heard me talk enough about revival stories. But I'm trying to, the things that my eyes have seen and my ears have heard and what I've encountered with God, I'm trying to, to share with the next generation so that they can know that it's available to them and they can experience it themselves. But it was so important, God was stressing this point to Israel. He said, listen, make sure that you do not forget these things and you make sure to make it a point that you tell your children and tell your grandchildren and that you leave a, a heritage there, a legacy with them. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And that's the truth. I've seen this. People can choose a path. God's laid it out. We all have the same Bible, the same truth available to us. And people in life, you can even see sometimes in families, one, one child will choose it, the other will choose a different path. But it's literally choosing either life or death, blessings or curses in their life. But God has laid it out, and he says, and then he goes so far as to say, therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Because when people choose that path and they start polluting their life, in defiling their bloodline and bringing curses on themselves, it will affect their children and their grandchildren and down the line. And he says, and may the love, may you love the Lord your God, obey his voice and cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. And then one of the things you remember in the Bible, the Lord spoke about Abraham and he was revealed to be a friend of God. How many of you guys would want God to consider you in a close enough relationship that God would consider you to be his friend? You know, well, Abraham was that. And I wondered about what about Abraham pleased the Lord so much. I know that he was a man of great faith. And I know that he was very obedient. And I know that he chose to live a righteous life and all of that. But listen to something that God spoke about him. In Genesis 18, verse 19, it says, I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Have you guys ever read that? God chose Abraham because he knew he could trust him to command his household into the things of God. That he would rise up and lead his family into the things of God and not away from God. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So, Leviticus 26, 38, uh, this was a negative thing when God was warning Israel about them getting into sin. And this is what he said, Leviticus 26 is like the curses that would come because of disobedience, okay? He said that you will perish among the nations, but listen to what he said, and your enemy's land will consume you. In other words, you will perish, you'll be dispersed out, to enemy land so those of you may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers which are with them they will rot away now that's an interesting statement so God was saying that if you get into sin that you will be dispersed among the nations and you will rot away in your enemy's land. And he said, it's your iniquities that you're going to rot in and the iniquity of your fathers that is still with you. It, did you catch that? It's still with them. All right, and then Leviticus 26, verse 40. God says, but hey, listen, if they will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised hearts become humble so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. And he goes back up the line. He goes with Jacob, the covenant with Isaac, and the covenant with Abraham 
and I will remember the land of Israel too. But he said basically they're being dispersed and judged because of their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers that's still with them. But he says if they will confess it and the iniquity of their fathers and they'll deal with it, he said then I will remember and I will restore again. It reminds me of Joel chapter 2 where he says call a solemn assembly, declare a fast, let the you know, priest uh, weep and wail between porch and altar and gather the elders and and there, you know, there's a song that we do about that. But anyway, to gather the people, and he said if they will do that, and, and you know, like having a humble heart, and if they will humble themselves and they'll pray and they'll fast and they'll repent and they'll do right and get things right with God, he said, here's what I'll do. I'll rebuke the army against them. I'll rebuke their enemy away. And he said, I will pour out my spirit on them and I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. So God wants to do that, and that sounds in Joel 2, that sounds like revival, doesn't it? So every great revival in Israel's history, there was a confession of the sins of their ancestry. And this is an interesting thing, but I know from the Word of God and from experience that this is a very serious issue. Things try to move down bloodlines now it can be a very positive thing so let's start with that i've shared this story many times but i love it so i'm gonna share it again for those that haven't heard it but i remember when one time i was uh, god really touched my life at brownsville at the revival i went there i was probably i think i was 19 at the time but i went there and i didn't really know what to expect but i'm so thankful because when i went i had a pastor at the time that was really favorable toward the revival. He told me, when you go to get prayer, and I did, I went down and got prayer. But I remember God just really touching me real powerful there. But Lindell, he said something really interesting. He was at the keyboard, and he, was, he stopped the service. And there's, you got to understand, there's so many people that come in that are lost, or they've kind of wandered into this revival by the thousands. And so Lindell basically stopped the service and he said this. He said, some, some of you guys here, he said, you feel something stirring in you and you don't even know what it is. But he said, I'll tell you what it is. He said that you had a Pentecostal, spirit-filled uh, mom or grandma or great-grandma and they prayed for you. And it's in your blood. It's in your DNA. And you're here tonight and you literally feel something stirring in you. There's a generational blessing. So listen, there's generational blessings. There's things that travel down bloodlines that are positive. But there's also things that travel down bloodlines that are very negative. And so you have to deal with that. Every great revival, Israel had to deal with it. They had to confess their sins and the sins of their ancestry. Vicarious repentance. So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prayed that way. He said, Lord, forgive us for our sins and for the sins of our forefathers. And God began to move on the heart of King Cyrus because of that prayer. So Israel was, was in a bad place. They were in Babylonian captivity. Seventy years were up. But it was Daniel's prayer that he stood in the gap as an intercessor and confessed his sin, but the sins of the nation. And Daniel prayed in such a way, this is important, Daniel prayed in such a way, even though he was a righteous man, he said, Lord, forgive us for our sins. He associated himself with the sins of the nation. He went before the Lord as a great intercessor. Is this making sense? Even though he was probably without sin, he associated with the nation and he associated with even the sins of the fathers and he said lord forgive us pardon us and you know what god heard that prayer and things begin to move so there's something about this vicarious repentance that's very powerful god is so faithful to his word and to his covenant and then nehemiah in the days of ezra and nehemiah cyrus allowed them to go back ezra goes back ezra is a scribe and he's teaching the people the word of the Lord. He's overseeing the rebuilding of the second temple period. There's prophets of that day that have to encourage him because it's very difficult. The task is very difficult. They face great opposition. 
the people that Ezra was ministering to were ignorant of the word of God. He's trying to teach them. But Nehemiah comes after him and had to rebuild the walls because they needed to be protected from their enemies. And Nehemiah had such a burden from the Lord about this that he literally would weep. He would ride around and see the wall broken down. He would weep. But listen to Nehemiah's prayer. He understood this principle. It said, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. This was a way at that time of really humbling yourself. In verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of the fathers. And because they did this, there was a period there under Ezra and Nehemiah where there was great restoration. Understand, the second temple was rebuilt, the wall was rebuilt, everything that had been lost was gradually being restored back. But remember Joel 2, if you will humble yourself in prayer and fasting and you'll really repent, he said, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. So there was a great restoration, but the restoration came because of their confession of their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So there's something about the power in the blood. Have you ever noticed the emphasis that God places on the blood of Jesus? So there's something about the power of blood. And even, you know, in the days of Israel when God was moving in that way, when there were offerings, it was the blood of the offerings. Remember at Passover, it was the blood applied to the doorpost. So I want you to see the power of the blood and what's in the blood. In Hebrews 12 verse 4, it says this, You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. Now most translators believe, and I believe this is probably true as well, this you have not resisted unto blood is like martyrdom, is what they're talking about. But... Could there also be this? Something about you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. Could it not be like a metaphor that you haven't dealt with issues in your life all the way down to the blood, to the bloodline? Do you see what I'm saying? A lot of people haven't. They've confessed their sin, but they've never really dealt with things thoroughly that go back up the bloodline so that they can be totally free and their children can really be free. Everybody knows that once somebody accepts the Lord, a lot of times there'll be such a sincerity in them, but they also have great struggles. And they wonder why certain things are so difficult to overcome. Some things are just from their own personal bondages they got themselves into. I understand that. But sometimes you see iniquitous patterns that go down family lines. And those people struggle in that area. And it could be something that's traveled down the family line like a spirit of bondage where there's an iniquity in them where they have a compulsion toward drug addiction, toward alcoholism and bondage. They also could have a compulsion, an iniquitous drive within them in their family maybe toward violence, toward anger, toward bloodshed. Because maybe that's in their ancestry. Also, there could be some kind of a compulsion in them where they feel a drive towards something about the occult and that darkness, that spiritual darkness. Something in them feels drawn to that. And you look up their bloodline, you find out that they have witchcraft in their family. You see? Um, there could be other issues, um, sexual immorality, tendencies toward unfaithfulness etc but there's something that has traveled down the bloodline so let me let me explain real quick about sin and transgressions and iniquity there's three words but they're all very different the bible says in first peter 2:24 that jesus bore in his body our sin well sin it means missing the mark so how many of you guys have ever shot at targets okay you may be either a gun or maybe a bow and arrow. You do your best to hit the bullseye, but you miss. Sometimes really bad. 
Well, that's what sin is, is that sincerely you're making an effort, but you miss. That's sin. It's not intentional. But transgression in the Bible is very different. Transgression means a rebellion against God. So this isn't incidental. This is something that the, the person knows it's wrong, but they do it anyway. It's a rebellion against God. And see, in the Garden of Eden, when you read about it, it says that Eve was deceived and she sinned, but it always refers to Adam transgressed because he knew it was wrong. He wasn't tricked into it. He did it out of rebellion. Does this make sense? And it's also interesting that Jesus, it says about him that he was pierced for our transgressions. And when you read about transgressions in the Bible, with sin, it talks about sin being washed away in the Old Testament covered. But with transgressions, it always uses the phrase to blot it out. Is it, you follow me? So it's like, it's something more sinister about transgressions. Also, iniquity is altogether different. Iniquity translates in the Hebrew, bent, crooked, perverse. And the Bible talks about iniquity like it's generational. It says, I will visit the iniquity down the bloodline. Iniquity is something most of the time that you inherited. It's come down the blood, it's in people, and it is a compulsion, a drive toward certain things. And they wonder, why is it so difficult to overcome this? And it's obvious when you look at it that it's something that was in the ancestry. But here's the good news about it. The Bible says Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, but he was bruised for iniquity. So he paid by being pierced and bleeding outwardly for transgressions to be blotted out, but he paid for iniquity to be delivered out of us by him being bruised. When you're severely bruised, you bleed on the inside. So Jesus was paying by bleeding inwardly for these inward iniquitous patterns to be removed out of us. Now let me say it as simply as I can. Sin, when you, when you shoot at the mark and you miss, the Bible says you can confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. That seems to, to close out the matter, doesn't it? But when you're dealing with iniquity, somebody will confess it and then they'll go home and they'll make every effort for it to be different, but they end up back in it again. And they end up back at church in the altar again, forgive me, Lord. And they repent and they mean it, but they go back to it again. Why? Because it's something in them that the Lord needs to pull out of them. There's a complete different thing here. So iniquity... When Jesus was bruised for our iniquity, it was paid for us to get the victory over this thing. Whenever you overcome iniquity, it has a lot to do with confessing not only your sin and your iniquity, but the iniquity of your fathers that is still with you. There's drives in people towards certain things. I'm convinced that there's an iniquity associated with unforgiveness. Because you'll see a lot of times in, in family bloodlines that there'll be people that have a very difficult time forgiving others. They hold grudges and they get bitter. And you'll find that their descendants have a hard time not being that way. Even though they hear it at church, they have a hard time really forgiving and letting it go. That's an iniquity. So when we humble ourselves and lay hold of it at the cross and get desperate with God about it, okay, and we say, Lord, forgive us for this iniquity in me and in my ancestry. I know it's there. Forgive me for it. I'm asking you to take it out of me by the roots and kill it, that it'll be gone from me, from my children. It won't be in me anymore. I'm telling you from experience that God can pull that junk out of you and it's different. It's different than just being forgiven from something. It's where the power that thing has had over you is gone. The Lord pulls in, he, pull, he reaches in rather, and pulls out like a root out of you. And you no longer have that compulsion there. That's iniquity. 
And it's very interesting how these things work through bloodlines because, again, there's very positive. I mentioned this last week, but I, I want to say both positive and negative. You know, my father grew up in Pentecost. Thank God for that. But something really interesting to me was that my mother was saved in the fires of revival. So she came to know Jesus during what was known at the time as the Jesus movement of the late 60s, early 70s. And she was born in the fires of revival. It's no accident that generationally I ended up by happen chance that my feet ended up at the Brownsville revival where God, listen, God totally, completely wrecked my life in a positive way. I mean, just overhauled my life. It was amazing. I've never been the same. But I believe it was a generational thing. I could give several other examples in my family where there's positive that came down. And, I, and it's interesting. I was telling my wife this the other night, actually. I've ministered some in other countries. And I thought it was very interesting. We talked about this, that places where my family descended from, of all the places I could have ministered in the world, I ministered in those places in Europe. In Scandinavia. That ended up there. Isn't that interesting? So there's something about generational blessings, but there's also the generational iniquity. And so when you have iniquity, so I'll do my best to explain this, but a complicated thing, trying to do my best to make it not complicated. But anyway, where you have iniquity in, in blood, it's in people. It's traveling down generation to generation. Because of that iniquity, there is a generational curse that is set upon it, and it's there. And because there's a generational curse, you see all kinds of problems, health problems, financial lack, divorces, strife, family alienation. Things don't work out that should have worked out. All kinds of problems, that's a curse. And because there's a curse there, there are demonic spirits that move in and out from that curse to create those problems. You go, you finally get a break and get a better job, and the demonic goes over there and ruins the job. You see what I'm saying? You finally move forward, you get a victory in health issues, and all of a sudden, two more pop up. There is victory for these things in Christ. I'm telling you from experience, you can get the victory over this. But see, people just aren't taught about it. And when you don't know, people wonder, why do I keep dealing with this stuff? I've prayed about this. And they start getting frustrated with God, but God's not the problem. So my wife and I really had to research this, um, obviously from her testimony. But once we start understanding iniquity, and we start confessing our iniquity and the iniquity of our ancestry... God begins to pull all that iniquity out and you can break those curses off your life and you command those spirits to leave and it is amazing the freedom that comes. It is amazing. So think about what goes down bloodlines. It's interesting that from Adam that even the next generation, think about this for a minute, Adam who was created in God's image, you couldn't have got any more pure in his blood. But he eats something he's not supposed to. One sin brings this sin into his blood, his DNA. And now when he procreates, that goes to the next generation. It was one generation and there's already murder. Cain kills Abel. By the time this blood worked its all, all the way down 10 generations to Noah... Things were so bad in the days of Noah that God looked upon the earth and he said, I'm grieved that I even made man. And he said this, though, this is interesting. He said, but I, Noah found favor with God. And in the Hebrew, it says he was blameless in his generations, which means his blood. His blood was still had some purity that went back to his ancestry of Enoch back to uh, Adam but Noah still had some purity there and so God spared Noah and his family but had to wipe out the earth 
The Bible says about the power of blood, this is obviously, you know, there's this DNA aspect. There's, there's, there's something about the blood. Life, the Bible says life is in the blood. And Israel was very clearly and specifically told, you do not eat blood. Israel was told, even if you go hunting in a field and you kill a deer, they said, hang it upside down, slit the throat, let the blood drain out into the ground, and cover it with dirt. Do not eat blood. God always respected the blood, even of animals, and said, you will not eat of it. If you do, you'll be cut off from me. And even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 15, whenever the council, the early church counseled together, the gospel was going out now to Gentile nations. They said, well, what do we need to tell them? What advice? And they said, well, tell them to stay away from idols and false gods. Stay away from any type of sexual immorality and don't eat blood. And the Bible also says about the blood that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. That's interesting. God confronted Cain, said, where's your brother? And Cain gets a smart mouth. That's not smart. And anyway, and so God says, well, you know what? The blood of your brother is crying out to me. So there's something about the blood. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you know what? The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus over our lives will speak on our behalf. I believe when we approach the Father the right way and we come through the blood of Jesus and we come before the Father and we confess our sin, I believe that God sees us washed and clean. But it's because of the blood. That's why I always take time at the beginning of a service say, hey, let's confess things and make sure we forgive people and, and let's get washed in the blood of Jesus, take communion together. Because when we, when we come before the Father, there's not anything dirty or stained or whatever. We're, we're coming washed in the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus causes us to be protected, but also causes us to be in right standing where we are made the righteousness of God in Christ because of the blood. And once you accept the Lord as your Savior, you're born again. And the seed of God is in you. But you have to overcome all of this stuff. And I don't know about you, but I want to be an overcomer. And see, when you read the book of Revelation, read chapters 1 and 2, the message to the churches, it always says in there, to him that overcomes, I will give. To him that overcomes, to him that overcomes. When Jacob was wrestling the angel and finally the angel touched his hip, remember that? But he would not give up. God said, the angel said, you have striven with God and prevailed, therefore you're called Israel, which basically means an overcomer. That Jacob wrestled until he overcame. I believe that's a message for all of us that we need to to, to keep pressing in until we overcome everything that we need to overcome. Because everybody has battles. I mean, if we're going to be truthful about it, every Christian, everybody, everybody has had things to overcome. The question is, are we just going to simply accept things the way they are, or are we going to say, wait a second, Jesus paid for every bit of iniquity to be out of my life and my family. He paid for me to be delivered. He paid for me to be in victory. I choose that I am going to keep on this until I'm an overcomer in every area and prevail. So the blood of Jesus also has to do with the glory. Now, I've taught a lot about the glory, so let me just kind of move to this. So Luke 18, I'm going to give just a couple more things. Luke 18 has to do with the persistent widow. What you have to understand is this. We know God a lot of times as when we accept the Lord, we're, we're taught a lot about him being a father, which can be good, and in many people's cases, that brings a lot of confusion because maybe they didn't have a good relationship with their dad. So, you know, does that make sense? So you start saying God's a father to us, which he is. 
But that can be confusing to some people. God is also, um, uh, he's also a righteous judge, which is a good thing for us. Even though a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to be judged. Well, actually, it's not a negative thing because the judgment of God is meant for our good. If there is something off, he'll discipline us in a good way, like a father does, to bring us to a place of being an overcomer. But the judgment of God is really against Satan and his kingdom. And see, Jesus, when he died on the cross, it's a judicial thing. So let me, let me try to explain this. So, all right, so picture this. Picture that I had a family business that was worth a lot of money. And I was going to give this as an inheritance to my daughter. But she acted foolishly and was tricked. And she ended up giving it to an evil person who got that inheritance. So later she comes to me upset. And I could have just simply just written the whole thing off, said, what's well, over? But instead of doing that, I was willing. I, I went to this person and said, I, I'm going to get this back. But it was going to cost an exorbitant amount to get it back. Do you see? So this is what happened. God creates things. He puts Adam over it. It's an inheritance. But Adam acts foolishly and gives it over to the devil. So legally speaking, Adam squandered it. He gave it. See, it's a legal thing. So the father could have just written all of us off, but he wasn't going to do that. So he has to pay an exorbitant price. He has to send his son to die a brutal death to buy it back. So when Jesus died on the cross, it is a judicial thing too. You understand? That Jesus' death on the cross is actually a payment that what was lost in Adam is restored back. Jesus is called the last Adam. All right, so picture for a moment that God is a, as a judge... And Satan comes in and he's always accusing. How many of you guys have ever read the book of Job? So you remember how Satan would come and he would accuse. And he accused Job of, you know, look, if you lift your hand, he'll, he'll hate you and all that. Satan's always accusing us. And he's trying to find a way to find something either in us or in our ancestry or something like a legal claim, a legal right to be able to attack our lives to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus' death on the cross is so thorough and so powerful that we can pray about it and it will cancel that legal claim. But you have to pray about it. It doesn't just automatically happen. So I'm hoping I'm not losing anybody with this, but... So Jesus died on the cross. His death was a payment for the sin of the world. But how many knows there's a lot of people that have not received that? It's available. In the same way, he took stripes on his back for healing. But yet, not everybody always has gotten healing in every area. It's paid for, but we have to keep praying it through until we get it applied to our life. In the same way, Jesus paid for our deliverance from these things but it's got to be applied to our lives by faith. And many times, revelation. Because you need to know what is the problem. When you pray about something and you don't see it change, instead of giving up, Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. We need to find out why is it not changing. Is there something in my life that I'm not even aware of? Is there something in my bloodline? What is it? that is giving the enemy some kind of illegal access here. And once you discern that and you go before the Lord, you say, Lord, I confess this. It's sin. It's iniquity. 
I ask you to forgive me for this in me and as it's in my family ancestry, forgive me. Let it be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Let the legal claim be settled now by the blood of Jesus. It is settled in the courts. Does this make sense? And it causes Satan to lose his claim. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it speaks on our behalf in the courts against our accuser. And so the persistent widow in Luke 18, the Bible shows that she kept going to this wicked judge. And this wicked judge did not care about her. But because she kept going, he eventually says, this woman's going to wear me out. (laughs) So just give her what she wants so she'll go away. But Jesus said, how much more will your Father in heaven do it? Just keep being persistent about it. Don't give up. He said, when the Son of Man comes, he'll find faith on the earth. The the message there wasn't that God is a wicked judge. The message was trying to show that this widow, who would not be able to have the finances to bribe this wicked judge, she had no hope but because of her persistence. That was really the message in it. So I'm going to move quickly through these last couple things. But the blood of Jesus speaks on our behalf. It silences our accuser. Satan's claims are canceled. The accounts are settled because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it has to be applied to our lives. I don't have too much time with this, so I'm just going to say it quickly. But the blood gives us access to the Holy of Holies. That's a huge promise there. The blood paid for deliverance, Galatians 3.13. Derek Prince did a good job of breaking down that Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. I don't have them in front of me, so I'm just going to, you know, but there were nine categories of curses that come because of disobedience. Things like humiliation and failure and defeat and oppression and various sicknesses, mental illness, family, families being destroyed, poverty and lack, etc., he broke it down into to nine categories of curses. And a lot of times when people look at their families, they see these patterns of curses. Different diseases that traffic down the family. Different financial struggles. Tendencies to fight and divorce, etc. But there are seven blessings. And so here's the good news. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us hanging on the tree the cross, so that the blessings given to Abraham come on us. We're redeemed from those curses, and the blessings come. So there is a judicial right, a claim, by the cross for us to be delivered from all of those curses. And that the blessings given to Abraham are on us, and Derek Prince brought out seven categories of blessings. Exaltation and promotion. You'll be the head, not the tail. Health, long life, reproductiveness, fruitfulness in every area of life, prosperity and abundance, favor with God and man, and victory over every enemy. Every area of your life, that covers every area. Health, finances, relationships, everything. So there's a judicial thing where we can get Satan's legal claims canceled, cleared out, so that all those, that iniquity is is pulled out, all the curses are cleared away, the evil spirits are removed, and now the blessings come on our lives, and we walk in blessings. But let me say it again, it has to be applied, it has to be pressed into. So the last couple things I want to say is this, obedience, obedience versus rebellion. See, Satan, the Bible says that he is our adversary. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We know that. And I've never been to Africa on a safari. But I would imagine if I was in a tent and there was a roaring lion around that he would have my full attention, right? So the Bible's saying here that Satan is a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he can devour. 
But it's interesting because it says here that he is our adversary in this passage. And adversary is the Greek word antidikos, which means one who makes a lawsuit. Did you catch that? One who makes a lawsuit. So Satan is our adversary because he's our accuser because he goes before God trying to make some kind of an accusation or a lawsuit against us so that he can come in and steal, kill, and destroy. So the question is, are we living a life that is going to allow the enemy to accuse us before God? Number one, I'm going to read these quickly, and I know I need to close this out. Number one, we all know that we have to accept Christ as our Savior and be born again and come into a blood covenant, or we're never going to have any type of rights. You know, when people come into America the right way and they're not being criminals and they actually come in the right way, they can be sworn in and all the rights and privileges of being a citizen is available to them. When you accept Christ and you're born again and you come into a blood covenant, the rights and privileges come with that. But have we obeyed God? Have we been water immersed? Have we made sure to forgive people that we're supposed to forgive? Have we confessed and repented of our sins? Or we live in, in obedience to God's word? For example, this is not an exhaustive list, but I mean, are people faithful in their church attendance? Are they submitted to spiritual authority? Are they faithful in their tithes and offerings? Are they living a righteous life? Because if we're not living right, then the enemy is looking for an opportunity to be able to accuse us so that he can attack. And this is how I want to close this thing out tonight. This is why I'm doing little sections like this because it's just way too much information for one or two sermons. So we're going to cover this over a long period of time. But you remember um, I taught about Gideon not long ago and how Gideon had to deal with his stuff. Israel was steeped in Baal worship. And in Gideon's backyard at his dad's house, he had the, his dad had an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. And so God sends an angel to Gideon and says, O man of valor, and Gideon really is saying, who me type of thing. And he says, look, the angel told him, you Go, you're called by God, but you go and you tear down that altar bell in your dad's backyard and you cut down that Asherah pole and you put an offering to God on top of it that the blood of that offering is going to cancel that claim against your family. And so Judges 6.25, on that same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, you pull down that altar, which belongs to your father, and you cut down that Asher pole, and you build on top of it an altar to the Lord your God. And God called it a stronghold. In an orderly manner, and take that second bull, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. And God made sure that Gideon dealt with that legal right first before he released him into his destiny because Satan would have been able to accuse him and destroy him. So this is what I want to close with is just these basic things right here. Looking at the Ten Commandments, the very first thing in the Ten Commandments is you will not have other gods. Don't bow down and worship other gods and do not create graven images. And don't have gods like you worship God, but you also worship this other God too. Don't have another God. So idolatry, graven images, have people, have you or people in your ancestry even given offerings or finances to fund these idolatrous pagan things. Obviously, the worship of other gods, the worship of other gods are affections toward other gods. 
but also in most cultures it involves some kind of a blood sacrifice and also sometimes a sexual sacrifice or a sexual ritual that goes toward those other gods. In your family ancestry, could it be that you were dedicated to other gods? Because most other religions, including hardcore things like Satanism, but religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, most other religions, including Freemasonry, mind you, there are dedications, baby dedications, family dedications. See, Satan understands this principle. He's not just after you. He's after your descendants. He's after your blood. He doesn't want to just destroy you. He wants to destroy your kids, their kids, their kids, their kids down the line. So there's dedications that need to be broken. There's various altars and ceremonies and covenants and oaths and pacts with these gods that have been made by many people's ancestry. Many people don't even know it. But when people break free, it's interesting because a lot of times people will accept the Lord and think, okay, well, God's forgiven my sins. And all of a sudden, it's like all hell breaks loose. It's like they thought, thing, they thought life would get better. And it's like everything that, that could go wrong went wrong. You know what it is? Is that the things that were okay with them in the past, these dedications, these curses, these spirits, these things just lay dormant. But once the blood of Jesus came into their life, it stirred up and said, we're against that. So you need to break this stuff. And one of the things is a death and destruction curse. Also, mental strongholds. This is another thing. I've kind of got to just go through this real quickly. But mental strongholds are belief systems in people's minds where they think a certain way. People kind of make their own rules. And it, a lot of times these mentalities pass from parent to child. And they'll think that this type of sin is okay and this isn't a big deal. And it's like mental strongholds of deception that move even down family lines. Occult practices is the last thing I want to talk about. Occult practices, witchcraft, divination, and sorcery. I'm just going to give a quick definition and get off of it. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to recommend some resources for everybody, okay? And I'll be happy to pray with everybody. But one of the things that we do in River of Life is that we have a deliverance questionnaire for people to fill out that want to. And we pray with people. And we spend time going through that questionnaire, which cancels any legal claim. Are y'all hearing me? So it just goes down through it. It helps people deal with this stuff. But as I close out this, occult practices, witchcraft is ancient. Um, do you remember real quickly how Adam was given authority over the earth to have dominion, but it was lost? So there's something in humanity that wants to have dominion. Does this make sense? And cultures have tried to figure out a way to manipulate where they have some kind of a power to dominate. And that's why you see, just a couple examples, that's why you see in Africa, you see uh, tribal territorial witch doctors that, that seek through the dark arts to affect nature, to affect the, the crops, to affect the fertility of the women. You see, There's, they're trying to have some kind of a dominion, but they're doing it away from God. Basically, this is witchcraft. It, it's an illegitimate authority. And the only reason why it has any power at all is because demons ride those things. So people that, that have learned how to cast spells and release curses and do certain rituals, they do it, but all it's doing is summoning and releasing demonic spirits. That's the only reason there is any power, if there is any. Because sometimes it doesn't work at all. But that's, that's witchcraft. It's learning how to manipulate things. Manipulate people. Manipulate money. Divination in necromancy. Divination is just seeking information. A, apart from God. So they want to go to a palm reader. Or some kind of a, a crystal ball reader. They want to try to read the, 
you know, the constellations or whatever. They try to look at the stars. They look at all these different things to try to get information from a demonic source. Necromancy has to do with conjuring and, and talking to the dead. But let's make it real clear, whether it's a Ouija board or a seance or whatever, you're not talking to a dead person. You're talking to a demon. That's pretending to be your dead relative. And then sorcery has to do with substances. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakeia, where we get the word pharmacy and drugs from. So substances that are ancient rituals have many times involved mind-altering drugs, things that would be drank to alter the consciousness to make people more open to the demonic realm. And I remember when I was in high school, there were some guys that I knew, and um, I, I was not there, but I heard about this. But they, they were together, and they, they started doing some drugs or something, and they all saw this. They, they were sitting around, they were watching something on TV, and they were all real high and everything. And the people that were there all saw it. They saw a being come out from the TV and walk into this lady and possess her. They were all real high on drugs. They totally freaked out. All of them saw it, and they didn't know what to do. So they call a preacher. He comes and casts the demon out of her. She falls, manifests everything. It leaves her. And it scared him half to death. But drugs open the doorway. And witch doctors to this day use potions. There's objects that are supposed to bring through witchcraft, supposed to bring power, luck, wealth, protection. Various jewelry, talismans, staves, wands, whatever. People have things that's supposed to bring them some kind of supernatural power. That's sorcery. All right, is this in your ancestry? Because these things produce iniquity, they bring a curse, and they bring in the demonic. And the Lord wants us free in Him. So, we'll pray with people some tonight, but this is an in-depth thing. There's, there's different books. If, you, if you're one of those that wants to know multiple, because I, I read a lot myself. Derek Prince has two books called Blessings and Curses You Can Choose. And they shall expel demons. Derek Prince, two of the best books ever written on the deliverance ministry. Rebecca Brown has a book called Unbroken Curses. Amazing. Henry Malone has a book called Portals to Cleansing, which has to do with cleaning out your house spiritually so the presence of God can come and it'll be sealed off from the enemy's influence. But this book I want to re really recommend, and I hate that I can't pronounce his name, but he's German, and I would like you to try, okay, <laughs> before you make fun of me. Um, but anyway, it's called Redeeming Your Bloodline. And I'm going to get a few extra of these and just start passing them around, okay, so everybody will have some. But this is a really good book, Redeeming Your Bloodline. And his last name is spelled S-I-R-O-V-I-N-A. Sirovina, I imagine is how you say that. Um, but anyway, redeeming your bloodline. And he deals with all of these in this. And there's some really good prayers in the last chapter. Renunciation prayers. That I believe will be a tremendous blessing to you. And so again, I'm going to try to circulate this. But listen guys, there's a lot of things. If we're just going to be honest about it. There's a lot of things in our ancestry that we don't even know about. And there are things, I know the Bible talks about third and fourth generation, but there are things that can go way back that still are in effect well beyond just three or four generations. Um, but there's always three basic steps for deliverance. I would, I would say this first, you've got to be desperate. <laughs> People, God delivers you from your enemies, not your friends. Did y'all catch that? People that still have their sin in their life and it's still their friend. God's never going to deliver you from your friend. You've got to start hating that thing. It's an enemy. When you hate it and it's an enemy, he'll deliver you from it. 
But there's three basic steps of deliverance. First is you cancel the legal ground the enemies have by asking forgiveness and repenting. That'll clear away the legal right. The second thing is to destroy the works of the enemy. You're a Christian. You have authority. So start using it. Get ticked off. In the name of Jesus, I break every curse. I destroy every bondage. And take authority over the works of the devil and break it off your life and off your family. And then number three, drive out the enemy. But in that order, cancel the legal ground, destroy his works, and then drive him out. If you see patterns in your family, start taking authority over them. I bind those spirits. If it's something like rebellion, I bind that spirit of rebellion. You're not going to continue in this family. And begin to drive it out in Jesus' name. But let me give you some advice. Deal with the strong man first. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you who's the strong man. But anyway, we're going to circulate these around, okay? I got a couple of them. Go ahead and, and shut down recordings and I'll pray tonight. But how many of you guys knows that Jesus paid for our freedom? And there is freedom available to us. And